1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul says there, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And Father, we humbly ask for just the grace and the help now of your spirit to understand and to hear what the voice of God is saying to us through this portion of the word of God this morning. We thank you that you have given to us by your spirit, the word of God, and we pray now that by your spirit, you'd help us to understand it and to hear what you are saying to us personally. So Lord, help us to be attentive and give us a desire to want to hear your voice through what your word says this day. Speak to us, we ask together, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, certain restaurants, as well as, of course, special events, or maybe even some weddings, have a strict dress code. And that strict dress code is necessary for both entrance and participation. For example, we refer to sometimes what we call a black tie event. Uh, And for those of you who don't know, a black tie event is just kind of a reference to a strict formal dress code. Typically, the men are in tuxedos. The women are in like ball gowns. Now, if that is true, to have entrance into special locations or important events that you can't just come casually, but you have to have the right preparation in advance on earth, how much more would that be true in regards to access into heaven? To have access and entrance and to be able to participate in the heavenly father's house, to have access to the king of all kings, to be able to be in the presence of the spiritual realm where holy God in all his glory dwells. See, because God is so righteous and so pure and awesome, and heaven is such a glorious place, even as someone in shorts and flip-flops and maybe no shirt may not even have access to a store on the boardwalk, let alone a black tie special event here on earth, In the same way that that's true, you can't get in if a formal dress code is required, a person cannot just casually, in their natural condition, enter into heaven and enter into the glorious presence of an almighty, pure, and righteous, and a holy God in their human condition from birth, which the Bible teaches is both sinful as well as we have corrupt mortal bodies that are weak, And so the Bible teaches that it is not acceptable nor possible even 
to enter into the kingdom of God in our natural condition that we must be prepared properly first by a spiritual transformation. And that involves two things. Of course, first of all, that our spirit and soul has to be redeemed. We have to be born spiritually to actually become what the Bible refers to as a biblical child of God. We're all created by God, but that doesn't mean we're automatically a child of God. God's created everyone, but there is a biblical experience the Bible says has to happen to actually become God's child. We have to have a spiritual birth. Our sins must be forgiven if we're going to be in the presence of a holy God. We have to have a righteous standing to be able to enter, and we must know his son personally, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you come to the father's house at the entry door, if you come to my house, if you know one of my daughters, then perhaps I may have more willingness to let you in. But if a random stranger just knocks on the door and says, can I come in? Well, I, I might not perhaps be as quick to let them in. Well, how much more is that true again in the father's house? It's as you know Jesus and you're connected and related to Jesus, that's where access into the father's house in heaven comes from so that is important for us spiritually in our spirit and soul but our text this morning tells us also at some point we literally have to be changed bodily that is these present flesh and blood bodies are not able to enter into the spiritual and eternal dimension we have to be dressed in proper spiritual attire and that happens and what the bible has been talking to us about in first corinthians 15 in this chapter at what's referred to as the resurrection of the dead that is, these present bodies now must be transformed into glorious, eternal, spiritual bodies that are able to experience a spiritual and an eternal realm. And we have to receive that new spiritual body. And that's what our text is addressing, that we must be changed. Now, last time in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul was talking about that new spiritual body and what it will be like. And we saw different things that Paul described there, indicating that the body physically we have now, that at death that we bury into the earth like sowing a seed, that that same body is not what gets resurrected and goes into heaven's presence, but that God miraculously transforms the seed of our natural human body, and he miraculously changes that same identity, but miraculously changes it into a spiritual, eternal body to be able to enter into the presence of God. That's why Paul last time was describing, as we saw in verses 42 through 44, how at the resurrection of the dead, he said the body is sown into the ground in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. And so he says, look, there is a natural body, but then there are also second words afterwards comes a spiritual body. And that spiritual body that Jesus had when he rose from the dead is the prototype of the new body that we're one day going to get. And this is what Paul was talking to us about last time. Now, Paul further emphasizes at this point as he finishes the chapter why that change is necessary. And Paul's now going to talk to us about why it is absolutely necessary to experience the supernatural realm to first be changed and transformed to be able to enter into God's presence. And what he's going to say is that there are actually some people who will actually be alive and in a sense will elude the death experience in order to get that supernatural body. Some get it as the result of dying naturally, but he's going to say others 
are going to be alive when Jesus returns, and they will be instantly removed from this earth and miraculously transformed without going through that doorway, if you would, of the death process. So look with me, Paul, verse 50 begins to say this. He says, now this I say, brethren, notice that word, that is key, brethren. These are things for Christians, Paul's going to say, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption, he say, inherit in corruption. So notice Paul is making a declaration of spiritual fact to, you might say, his spiritual family. He uses the term there, brethren, which is a family term. It's used in the Bible to speak of a fellow spiritual sibling in the family of God, a brother in the Lord, a sister in the Lord. It's a term used to describe a fellow child of God as the result, listen, of a spiritual birth where God becomes your heavenly father. The Bible speaks of how we must experience a spiritual birth at some point in our earthly life, a second birth, a spiritual birth, after our physical birth. And that spiritual birth is what makes us become God's child. And that transpires when a person, understanding they are sinful and unworthy and unable to be in God's presence in their sinful condition, exercises belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, in that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, taking that punishment, and that Jesus rose from the dead, and they call upon Jesus for their own personal need of salvation. And they receive Jesus as Savior for their sin and embrace him as Lord. Galatians 3 says this, listen, he says, we become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice the Bible says, at a certain point, we become a son, a daughter of God. We don't begin as a son or daughter of God. Jesus himself taught that. He says, there's a certain point, just like your life on earth began when you came through the narrow birth canal, you had a birth experience. He's saying at a certain point, we must become a son or a daughter of God. And that comes when we put our true personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John says this in John chapter one, to as many as believe and have received Jesus, to them he gives the right to become a child of God. Those not born of blood or of the will of the flesh, but born of God. So again, notice, to as many that choose to believe upon and receive personally, they make a personal decision at some point in their life, to receive Jesus as Savior, those are who God gives the right, the power to actually then supernaturally become a child of God. We have a spiritual birth. So it's to those that the Bible defines as children of God because they've been born spiritually. It is to that group that Paul then emphasizes here in verse 50 that we cannot receive our Heavenly Father's glorious inheritance unless there is a change from our current natural condition. That's why he's saying in verse 50, to us as believers, that flesh and blood that we now live in now, these bodies can't inherit the coming kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit in corruption. That is our current physical body made up of a flesh and blood life system. It's designed for experiencing life in the natural realm. On this earth, we talked about this a little bit last time. Our current natural body breathes oxygen because we're on the earth. 
And so it burns oxygen and produces carbon dioxide. And it's set up for this planet's natural environment, the earthly environment that we are currently living in. It's a very useful body designed incredibly by God. And it's amazing what God can do with a little bit of dirt from the ground, right? I mean, it says he took the dust of the ground and formed Adam and breathed in those nostrils the breath of life. I mean, that's a whole new idea to the term dirtbag. I mean, think about what God's done. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So if these bodies are incredible, can you imagine how incredible the heavenly body is going to be? But he says these natural earthly bodies, they're limited to experiencing natural life on earth. And they help us to express ourselves now to embrace people and to talk to people and to interact. But that's what they're, they're a present earthly body. But notice he says this body, verse 50, look at it. He says it's characterized this current body by corruption. That is, it's gradually corrupting these Present earthly bodies, they have an expiration date. They wear out, just like food corrupts, just like appliances wear out with use. They're only suited to handle earthly life now, and they're gradually fading and weakening, and all of our bodies are deteriorating. It's a part of the life cycle. That's why he says flesh and blood cannot, it's not possible, cannot flesh and blood inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to that eternal realm of God's presence where holy, awesome God is. It's a vastly different realm altogether. It's a spiritual realm, not an earthly temporal realm. It is the realm where all of God's glory is and there are much greater standards of glory in that environment. Everything is vastly different. It's a place of incorruption. Nothing in heaven is corrupting or dying or wearing out. It remains that way eternally, everything as it is. So our present earthly body, Paul is saying here, it just can't inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because he says our bodies are marked by corruption. I'll tell you one problem is my corrupt sinful body would corrupt heaven. Just mine alone, let alone we add all of ours into it. Who knows Jesus? <laughs> so he's saying, look, that flesh and blood body, you got to leave that sinful body behind on the earth. It'll corrupt heaven. We don't want that to happen. And not only that, our weak human body that's corrupting and failing, it wouldn't even be able to handle the eternal dimension. I mean, the glory and the brilliance of God's awesome presence would just disintegrate these present bodies in an instant. They wouldn't be able to handle the brilliance and the glory of God. Our eyes that can look upon things now, we can't even stare into the sun. There's no way you could stare at the son of God. In all of his brilliance, your eyes would disintegrate. So we have to have completely new eternal bodies, a spiritual body that's glorified, that's designed and suited to live in the eternal dimension that can handle that experience of being in God's presence so that we can function and survive in glorious heavenly eternal kingdom where God is. So to live forever, we must have this new body. This is what Paul is saying to us here. And Paul now goes on to explain in our verses how not all people are going to receive that new spiritual glorified body as a Christian as the result of their natural death. For some Christians, as the result of their natural death, they will receive their glorified body because they've passed through the natural death process. But Paul is going to say here, there are some who will experience the transformation of this body 
into the glorified body as the result of actually still being alive at the coming of Jesus, at the return of the Lord and an event we often call the rapture of the church. So Paul says, verse 51, behold, he says, I tell you a mystery. Now, again, that term mystery, when it shows up in the New Testament, is not the idea of mysterious, hard to figure out. That New Testament term translated mystery, mysterion, refers to something that was once covered over, but now has been openly revealed, like a sheet over a statue. You know something's there, but you can't see it. And when you pull the sheet, that's the, the revelation. It's the revelation of something that wasn't once seen, but, oh, okay, now I see it. There it is. And this is the idea. Paul says, I want to tell you something that you didn't fully understand in the times of old, but the Spirit has now made evident to us. He wants to reveal a mystery, a spiritual mystery. And what is it? Paul says, going on, verse 51, he says that we shall not all sleep. And that term sleep, as we've talked about before, is basically a euphemism in the Bible for death. Again, the idea of laying down and rest, but to reawake and continue to live afterwards. And a euphemism is just an expression to refer to something that's difficult in just a little bit of a softer way. And so the Bible refers to the death of the believer as those who've fallen asleep. But he's talking about dying naturally. So he's saying there, I'm telling you a, a revealed mystery. He says, not all of us as Christians are going to die naturally. It's not going to happen to all of us. He goes on to say, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, verse 52, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. So notice Paul's making a declaration here of fact with certainty that some generation of the church, I'm willing to volunteer, that some generation of the church is going to escape the natural death experience and will actually still be alive when Jesus comes, which I believe is coming very soon, that some generation of the church, some group of believers will be alive and will be changed miraculously and instantaneously, Paul's going to say, into their glorified form and taken directly into heaven without undergoing death first at an event that we often refer to as the rapture of the church. Notice Paul's describing this experience here, and he describes when it will happen and kind of how it will happen. He says here in verse 52 that it's going to happen at the last trumpet. Now, trumpet blasts were used in the ancient culture to summon troops to indicate the start of a movement. And so, in essence, we see in the Bible references to various different times where the Bible speaks of God blasting his own spiritual trumpet, if you would, to summon the troops for a different purpose. In this case, God at this trumpet is rallying all the soldiers of the Lord to leave where they are and to move on to their new encampment, to leave this present earthly encampment and to move on to their new destination to be with the Lord eternally. So this is the trumpet that God blasts, whereby he, you might say, removes his kids before he brings war on all those who've rebelled against him and against the heavenly father. So prior to the onset 
of what the Bible calls a seven-year period of tribulation where Jesus will judge the world who has rejected him and refused him for all of time and eternity. Jesus first comes for his church, for true believers to remove us from this earth, that we escape that coming punishment. And the reason is because Jesus embraced our punishment. Jesus bore the wrath of God for us on the cross, and we are trusting in that. We have received that on our behalf. So therefore, for Christians, we are not appointed to undergo this punishment of the wrath of God against sin and Christ's rejection that is coming upon the world. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're going to experience deliverance or we're going to be removed before that happens. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, that as Christians... We wait for God's son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who is Jesus. And then he says this, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is, Jesus will deliver us from this coming wrath. And that deliverance happens at a supernatural event that can take place at any given moment. It's going to happen as a total surprise, instantaneously, no warning that at any given moment, maybe even before the Bible study. Is your heart right? That at any given moment, the trumpet can blast and it's over. And God removes believers and brings us into the presence of the Lord. We often refer to this event, though it's not a term in the Bible, the rapture that comes from the Latin word, the rapturos, which is basically a translation of the Greek of the, the catching away of the saints. And Paul refers to this event this quick snatching of, of saints, Christians, off of the earth to be brought right into heaven in 1 Thessalonians 4. Listen to how he describes it there. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, that's us right now, and remain until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who sleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet of God, there it is again, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. Now, this is why we read here in our text this morning in verse 52 that it says a trumpet call will sound. A trumpet call will sound. I don't know what it's going to sound like. But there's going to be a trumpet blast in some way, spiritually, that's going to take place. And Christians, he says, in that moment, who have already died, whose spirit and soul is already in the presence of the Lord. Because the Bible says that the moment a Christian dies, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So any Christian that dies prior to the coming of Christ, the moment they breathe their last breath, the Bible says they are present with the Lord. And the Bible says here that when that trumpet blasts, those who are dead in Christ, that is their physical bodies have been buried into the ground because they died as a believer, but their spirit is with the Lord. He says here, they shall be raised incorruptible in that moment. The idea is what will transpire is these believers who've been with Jesus in heaven, who've already physically died on earth in that moment first, even before we experience it, who may still be alive, 
their original body that they died in on earth and their spirit that's been with the Lord will in that moment miraculously be united and transformed and they will receive that glorified resurrected body. That's what he means here when he says we won't perceive those who've already died in Christ first. In that moment, they will experience their glorified body and then directly afterwards, you and I will undergo that same transformation. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, that when Jesus returns, he brings with him those who are asleep or who've died in Jesus. Their dead bodies in Christ will rise first. And then he goes on to say in that passage, we who are alive and remain afterwards shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus will always be with the Lord. And that's why here Paul says that we, he says it twice in our verses, verse 51 and 52, that we shall all be changed. That is instantaneous transformation, a supernatural change. And notice how it all happens. Again, if you would, in verse 52, notice it's not a process. There's not time to hurry up and get ready. You see what he says, verse 52? It will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The original word there in the original language is where we get our English word, Adam, the ideas of an indivisible thing. What he's saying is the smallest fraction of time that you can't even divide. That's how small the fraction of time is. He says it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. The idea is like the blinking of an eye. They say, I don't know how they measure it, that an eye blink takes one eleventh of a second. That's pretty fast. That's how fast, instantaneously, the whole thing is over. That supernaturally, God will miraculously bring that change and transformation as we're caught up to be in Jesus's presence and transported from this difficult earth and directly into the presence of the Lord. I tell you, that gives whole new meaning to the reality of saying things like, everything can change in a moment. In a moment, literally, we say that. But the Bible says that is true, that in a moment, everything can change. We can be taken out of here in the blink of an eye. Paul goes on to say, verse 53, for this corruptible body must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible, verse 54, has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, he says, then shall be brought to pass that saying that is written, death, he quotes from Isaiah, he says, death shall be swallowed up in victory. So notice the required exchange, the Bible says, must happen with our bodies to get this glorified body to enter into heaven's existence. You notice two times in verse 53 and 54, he says this corrupting mortal body, and notice the language there in the text, he says it twice, must put on. And he's emphasizing this must happen. He's saying this present body must put on a different body altogether, a body of immortality that never corrupts. It's like he's trying to use the picture here of like changing clothes, right? You, you take off one set of garments and you put on a completely different set of garments. He's saying that's what it's going to be like. You put off the old natural physical body and you instantly miraculously put on a new glorified miraculous body that God gives. It's the same idea, you might say, of moving out of an earthly body or an earthly temple or an earthly dwelling and moving into a much upgraded mansion. Moving into a completely different dwelling place 
that is made for eternity and much, much better than these earthly bodies. One translation renders the verse this way. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. And this, folks, is the longing of every Christian that's living now on earth. With the redeemed spirit and soul that's already connected to eternal life, that we find ourselves as we're journeying on this earth now, dealing with physical health issues and struggles and the pressures of sin and everything that we deal with in this earthly experience, we find ourselves in this body yearning and longing. The Bible actually says groaning to get out of this body and to be in that new glorified eternal body that's perfect and will last in that condition forever and be in the presence of the Lord. When we study 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to describe it this way. Let me read it to you in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. He says, we know that if our earthly house, this tent, you don't live in a tent forever, your body's a tent, it wears out. If that is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Did you groan this morning at all? You're still in your tent. Earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. The idea is like a disembodied spirit. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life and he who has prepared us for this very thing this exchange of bodies is god who has given us the spirit as a guarantee and he says so therefore we are confident knowing that while we are at home in this body we are absent from the lord for we walk by faith and not by sight but confident yes and well pleased that to be absent from this body we shall be present with the lord So the Bible says these are the very realities the Christian holds to and understands. And this is the struggle that we deal with now. That our soul and spirit is redeemed when we accept Jesus Christ and the spirit of God enters into us. And so our heart and soul and spirit is connected to eternity. But we're still in these fleshly, failing, sinful, weak, earthly bodies. And that's that constant struggle you're dealing with, right? Where Paul's frustrated all the time and and there's this sense of you feel heartsick. And not that a Christian is, you know, desiring to die, but the idea is that a Christian realizes that death isn't the enemy. Death is actually the tool that transitions them into everything they've been waiting for. It's what frees them from the struggle here and delivers them into the presence of their Lord and sets them free from earthly struggles and sickness and pain and hardship. And we yearn, groan in these bodies, knowing that there's something, a much better upgrade That's coming for us. So Paul says the culmination of this final victory for the Christian's experience, he says, verse 54, is that when this corruptible body puts on the incorruption and our mortal body puts on its immortality, then shall be brought to pass that saying, he quotes from Isaiah 25, verse 8, that death is swallowed up in victory. See, one day... God's conclusion of his work for the child of God is going to culminate in him swallowing up. I love that picture. Just swallowing up the death experience forever. And all the pain and all the grief 
and all the hardship that we deal with in the death experience, he says one day that's all going to be swallowed up because of the victory of Christ's work. And that will be put away forever, never to have to be dealt with again. That final triumphant victory as the result of the victory of what Christ has accomplished for us. That's why Paul says in verse 55, almost as if he's kind of taunting now. Notice verse 55, he says, oh, death, where is your sting? Paul says, oh, Hades or hell, where is your victory? So as a Christian, Paul is kind of he's kind of taunting death here. He's taunting hell in the grave. Death no longer has the sting it once did, Paul said. Not for the Christian. Because of what Jesus has done for us in defeating death's harm. The grave and hell no longer has the power to control our life or to consume us with fear because Jesus triumphed over sin and Satan and death and hell for us. And we know there's victory awaiting us. That's why Jesus in his glorified resurrected body declared this. He said, I am he who lives. I was dead. The idea is I became dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and death. See, the person who has the keys is the person who has authority. I have the key to my home because I have authority in my home. I control opening and closing the door. Jesus says, I have the keys of Hades and death. Jesus has the authority to open and close the door. Now listen, he doesn't have the keys to Hades and death because he wants to lock people in. That's what I want to do. I want to lock you into hell forever. And you know why Jesus has the keys of Hades and death? Because he wants to open the door and set people free. Because he says to people, listen, hell was created for the devil and its angels. It was never God's heart for anyone to go to hell. People choose to go to hell. God doesn't send people to hell. God offers a free gift to go to heaven. And Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm knocking on the door of your heart. Come to me. I'm the door. I can open the door and get you out of hell and get you right into heaven. And Jesus says, I have the power to do this. And because of what he accomplished for us in his love, this is what he offers to all of us. Paul tells us in verse 56 here, the idea is, The sting of death that does exist generally is sin, and the strength of sin, Paul says, is the law. So he declares humanity's problem generally. That's what verse 56 is saying. This is the realistic general problem of all humanity. He says here that the sting, verse 56, of death is sin. That word sting that Paul uses there is a reference to like a poisonous scorpion or some creature stinging a creature to infect it with its deadly venom. And he says, in essence, using a picture here, he's referring to the sting that has infected every single human being with a terminal venom. And he says, every person on the earth has been stung by the same toxic terminal venom, and that is sin. And the result of that is it's deadly, is it kills, is sin brings death. That is physical death that we're all mortal beings no human being can overcome the death process 10 out of every 10 people in this room will die we are mortal we all go through physical death as the result of sin entering into humanity god told adam in the day that he disobeyed god in the day that you do that you shall surely die and so physical death has now come into humanity we're mortal people 
But more than that, the Bible also speaks of spiritual death or eternal death. And that speaks not of separation of our body from physical life, but eternal separation from God's presence forever. That's spiritual death. That is that we are forever separated from God for all of eternity, which is a worse predicament. Well, how does that happen? Paul says, verse 56, very simply, it happens from sin. Because the Bible says, the soul that sins shall surely die. And the Bible also teaches that everyone sins, that there's no difference. All sin, the Bible says, and falls short of the glory of God. In other words, we can argue till we're blue in the face about this group and that group and all this divisive stuff. Look, the one thing every human being shares universally is we are all failures. We're all failures. This morning, if you feel like a failure, great. You're in a room of failures. We are all failures. Every single one of us, whether it's something we think, something we say, things that we do, no person is perfect. God's standard is perfection. If you think, oh, well, I'm better than this person, you're using the wrong standard. God's not going to go to heaven and say, well, Tony, because you were a little better than Kevin, I'll let you in. He's not getting in, though. That's, that's not the standard. God's standard is perfection. It's not a person. And if God's standard is perfection, the Bible says, guess what? Nobody makes it. Everybody fails and sins and falls short. We're all making mistakes from the moment that we're born until the day we breathe our last breath. We undergo the curse of sin, so we're born sinful, and we just carry out living sinful lives, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, our whole life long. We make mistakes. We think and say and do things wrong, things that disobey and displease God, and sin destroys our life. And the Bible says the consequence of sin is it is a, like a deadly venom that's terminal. As we live in sin, we just ruin our condition more and more as people. And that's why disease exists on the earth. That's why illness exists on this earth. And often the wrong ways we live sinfully is ultimately bringing harm to our lives as well. And the ultimate outcome of just being sinful people, the general effect of our sin, brings an end to our earthly lives. It's what ultimately causes us to be mortal beings. And we're told where sin gets its strength in the second half of verse 56. He says the strength of sin, where it gets its strength from, is the law. And what Paul's saying here is God's law or his holy word is the moral standard that indicts us all as guilty before our king. See, God has a clearly written standard, the law, God's word, and it clearly provides God's standards on all matters, moral and spiritual. Such a way that we have no excuse, the established written law of God proves we're all lawbreakers. It's the posted speed limits on right there. And his word, his law proves we are all lawbreakers before a holy God. Paul says it this way in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be silenced for its purpose, listen, is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. So Paul says the strength of sin that makes sin so strong is there's a clearly written law, God's word, that indicts every person without excuse. You are a guilty person before your God and creator such that we can't dispute that and such that we must confront the reality. Oh, no, 
I'm guilty, and therefore I deserve to be judged for my guilt. What do I do? I am a guilty, sinful person before God. Yet Paul proclaims in verse 57 the good news for mankind, especially for the Christian who's already called upon the name of Jesus for salvation, that though we're all guilty sinners deserving death and eternal separation from God, look what Paul declares, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory from our condition through our Lord Jesus Christ. So though sin and death has and would defeat all of us, the Bible says God offers us a way of victory. And that way of victory over our sinful condition and death and hell and all these things, he says that that path of victory is through the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, if you would, with me in verse 57 there, that we don't have to work to get our victory. We don't have to strive to obtain victory spiritually. The Bible says it's a free gift that God gives us the victory. God wants to give us victory. We don't have to work for victory. Quite honestly, we'd never make it. We'd be defeated constantly. But God wants to give to us victory. We have to humbly receive the victory that God offers through his loving grace. And that victory is given in a certain way, and Paul clearly makes it evident. Where's God's way of giving to us the victory? He gives us the victory. Look at verse 57. Through how? our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, victory doesn't come through your local church. He doesn't say victory comes through the pastor or the priest that can absolve you. No, because they're a sinful, guilty person just like you are, and they didn't die on the cross for you. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can give us spiritual and eternal victory. So he says, this victory God wants to give comes through the one who overcame. You know what's beautiful when you look at the term that Paul uses there in verse 57, God gives us the victory. It's actually in the present tense, indicating God continually keeps offering to us victory again and again as needed. Notice if you would, three things with me briefly. Notice where our victory over sin's punishment comes from. What's he say, verse 57? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh no, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I, know, I, I see it now. I'm guilty. Where am I going to avoid punishment that I deserve from my sin? Well, because the Bible teaches that the sinless life of Jesus, who came to this earth as God and took a second nature upon himself, a human nature, and lived, guess what, as a man, just like you and I, being in touch with divinity because he was still God and in touch with humanity becoming a man so that he could build the perfect bridge between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he lived the sinless life that no human being has ever lived before. Why? To satisfy the righteous standard of God. And if that weren't enough, then he allowed them to put him on a cross as a man with the same pain and nerve sensations we have, and to be brutally beaten and abused and pierced and punished and crucified to bear the wrath of God for the sin of the world upon himself so that we don't have to be punished. And then rose from the dead victoriously to overcome that. And now that's why Paul says, where does victory come from sin's punishment? Thanks be to God, he says, comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is only Jesus 
The blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, can cleanse us from all of our sin. Only Jesus can forgive my sin. Only Jesus can save your soul and spare us from judgment. Hebrews 7 says he continues to live forever with an unchangeable priesthood. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession. That's the way to have victory over the punishment you deserve for your sin, through Jesus. To come to Jesus and ask him to forgive you because only he can. Where also does victory come from sin's power? It's one thing to not want to be punished for my sin. But what about the struggle that we all have with sin, right? In these mortal, sinful, fleshly bodies. Where do I get victory over my desires that make me want to sin and temptation and sin just ruining my life and controlling my life in some life-dominating habit? Where does that victory come from? Well, Paul says, God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he's alive from the dead, means he's defeated everything, sin, death, hell, all of that. That's why Romans 6 through 8 tell us that we no longer have to live as slaves of sin, but we can walk in newness of life because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us when we embrace Jesus. And Jesus gives us victory and help to overcome our present struggles with sin. So Jesus gives us the victory over sin's power. It only comes by relying on him. And thirdly, where does victory over the death process come from? Well, if you haven't figured out yet, it's there in verse 57. Paul says, God gives us that victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 11, I'm the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. The idea is keep living in a new way. Whoever lives and believes in me, Jesus said, really never dies. They just transition and begin living in eternity. Hey, this morning, let me encourage your soul. What do you need victory over in your life today? What is it? What is it that you need victory over in your life today? I tell you on the authority of God's word, God wants to give you victory. But that victory doesn't come by you trying harder or following six steps. It comes through a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ and coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, I can't get victory over this. This just keeps defeating me. But Jesus, you defeated everything. So would you give me victory? I can't get victory, but would you please give me victory and let Jesus, by his power and help in your life, give you that victory. And Paul, in light of this glorious reality of this resurrection chapter, concludes the chapter in verse 58 saying that we should therefore respond. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of these resurrection eternal realities, he says, you be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Paul exhorts us, first of all, you might say to be stubborn spiritually, holding to what we believe. Paul says, be steadfast. That is unwavering, holding firm and dedicated and committed and immovable. The idea is don't move from your position. They were trying to move Christians away from believing the doctrine of resurrection and proper biblical truths. And Paul says, do not let what the world's saying change what you believe is the church. 
There are core doctrines to your faith and to Christianity. And Paul's saying, look, you be steadfast, immovable. It doesn't matter what man is trying to say or what they're trying to change in culture. That's culture. This is the church. We have the unchanging, immutable word of God, and we need to be steadfast and immovable, knowing what we believe and being assured of it, and that the word of God is what true, despite what people are saying outside of the church, and that we would be steadfast and immovable in what we believe. And secondly, Paul encourages the second half of the verse that we should also be steadily investing into spiritual service for the Lord. He says there at the end of verse 58, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Paul gives a strong exhortation, notice here, to faithful Christian living, encouraging us to fruitful service for the kingdom of God. Since Jesus is alive and he's watching everything that we do and he is offering to us the power and the victory to overcome any obstacles in our path, Paul says, well, that should really incentivize us to want to be engaged in working together with the Lord for the things of the kingdom of God and putting our life effort into that instead of just engaging in worthless, meaningless ways of a failing world system. Paul says this should motivate us. We should be putting abundant effort into doing the Lord's work, whatever that is and whatever it looks like in your life. Whatever work of the Lord he allows you to engage in. And he says, and we should be motivated with confidence because we know what we do matters. You see what Paul says in verse 58? He says, knowing that your labor that is spiritually is not in vain in the Lord. Now, look, there are a lot of things that we do on this earth that are vain and they're empty. And there's no guarantee they're going to accomplish anything. And some of that we even have no control over, right? You can invest your life into a career or to a relationship or pursuits or things that you do. And at the end of the day, it can, it can all end up being for vain, for nothing, right? There's no guarantees. Wait a minute, there is one guarantee. God's guarantee is whatever you do for the Lord, that will never be vain because God won't let it be vain. God will always reward that both now and eternally you know someone has said if jesus did not rise from the dead then nothing in life really matters but if jesus did rise from the dead then nothing else in this life really matters but what a great reminder this morning what matters most to you the things of this earth indulging in earthly things of this world system, trying to be satisfied from grabbing and getting what you can on earth? Or is it maintaining a stable, immovable walk with the Lord Jesus where you are investing your life in the kingdom of the Lord? I'll tell you this, the first will leave you empty. The second will prepare us for eternity. Choose wisely, amen?